If you've got a Bible, open to John chapter 12, where we're going to be this morning on this Palm Sunday. Hey, listen, we've got a busy week ahead, from Palm Sunday to Good Friday to an egg hunt on Saturday to Easter Sunday. But listen, these are all opportunities to recalibrate our hearts and remember who we are and who God is and who He's called us to be in this community where He has planted us. And so my hope is that we would not see this week ahead of us as a season of busy work, but we would see the week ahead of us as opportunities to connect with God and to connect with people who are far from Him in our community. And so I want to encourage you, be here with us on Friday, come help on Saturday, and then come celebrate with us on Sunday as we rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Well, listen, in John chapter 12 is where we are this morning. We'll pick up reading in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 16 together. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have a copy in front of you. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Listen, one of the things that I learned very early on in my experience as a parent is that one of my responsibilities, one of the life lessons that I need to instruct my children on is that there is a distinct difference between wants and needs. Can I get a witness from anyone else in the room? Listen, every time you go to the store with a young child, the stores know this. They have strategically placed items of significance and importance in the lives of your children at eye level at every checkout register that it is in the store. 
right? And so there's all kinds of trinkets and toys and treasures and candy and goodies right there for them to peruse as you're trying to check out. And they're pulling on your shirt sleeve, right? Or your blouse and they're saying, Mommy, Daddy, I what? I need this, right? This new Lego or this new Pokemon card or this new bag of candy because the candy at home in the pantry is not sufficient because it's not the same candy that they have at the checkout register at Target or at Walmart. Am I talking to myself? Has anybody else had that experience, right? I need this. And right, you have the distinct privilege as a parent of sitting with your child or standing there with your child and trying to explain to them while everyone else is backed up in the line why they don't need it. Right? And why they're going to put it back on the shelf and why are you going to leave the store without them melting down in a tirade, which if hopefully you have better results with that than I did whenever my kids were young. Right? But there's a distinct difference between want and needs. Right? And unfortunately, we don't always grow out of that as we age. And we don't always recognize the difference between wants and needs when it comes to our spiritual lives as well. But on Palm Sunday every year. On Palm Sunday every year, we're reminded that what we most want is not always what we most need. Let me say that again. On Palm Sunday, we're reminded that what we most want is not always what we most need. See, on Palm Sunday, this Sunday that the, on the church calendar marked to commemorate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as he comes riding on a donkey. On Palm Sunday, the people who awaited Jesus, the throngs of people, the great crowds that welcomed Him into Jerusalem as Jesus, they recognized Him as a long-awaited King in the line of David who would rule over His people with righteousness and justice. And they receive Him with exaltation and celebration. And yet the cries of exaltation on Palm Sunday would quickly turn over the course of five days to cries of crucifixion by Good Friday. You see, on Sunday, the people were calling out for deliverance, and on Friday, they were calling out for Jesus' death. Jesus is acknowledged as King on Palm Sunday by the same crowds that were raging against Him on Good Friday. In John chapter 12, you see the crowds blessing Jesus, but by John 19, what you find is the Romans have arrested Jesus, and they're beating Him incessantly. And listen, a large part of the human reason that they turned from exaltation to crucifixion in the span of five days was their expectations of Jesus. And listen, for us to really feel the weight of this, we've got to wrap our minds around some of the historical and political context that created these expectations of what the people wanted from Jesus. Listen, the historical context here, the, the, the little strip of land that lie between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, known as Israel or Palestine, right, has always been a contested hot spot, a strip of land amongst global affairs that's always been a heated area. Listen, let me give you a little bit of background. 586 years before the birth of Jesus, the kingdom of Judah was overrun by the Babylonians as God raised them up to judge His people, and the Babylonians would lead many of the inhabitants away to Babylon, into exile. Eventually, I'm going to compress a lot of history in a little bit of time, but the Babylonians were eventually conquered by the Persians, who were then conquered by Alexander the Great, and upon his death, his empire was divided up, and Israel was caught in the middle. 
Listen, then by 167 BC, there was a Jewish revolt which is known to history as the Maccabean Revolt. And it sparked, it was sparked when it led to nearly a hundred years of Jewish independence called the Hasmonean Dynasty in Jerusalem until the Roman general Pompey showed up in 63 BC to conquer and once again occupy Jerusalem. So listen, during Jesus' day, Israel was enemy-occupied territory. It was ruled by a foreign government. For the better part of six centuries, the Jewish people had either been living under foreign rule, in a foreign land, or with foreign occupation. And yet all that time, the Hebrew Scriptures had promised a king who would come to overthrow all of God's enemies, all the enemies of God's people, and establish a kingdom of righteousness and justice and rule on that throne. And it is into this context that Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey in enemy-occupied territory. But listen, this is also a politically charged environment that Jesus rolls into in John 12 as well. In Zechariah 9, the verses we read as we started the service this morning that are actually cited in uh, John 12, it says this, it says, Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on the on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, this king who was prophesied and promised, whenever he showed up, he would come and he would conquer all of God's enemies and put an end to war. There would be peace that would be ushered in and He would rule over His people for their good in righteousness and justice. And then think about this. Jesus, the people are coming, not only they see Jesus, but who else are they coming to see in John 12? Lazarus, because Jesus has just brought Him back from the grave. So Jesus has just raised a man from the dead. He's been teaching about the kingdom, performing miracles, doing all kinds of, of miraculous things and teaching the people. And so the people, whenever they, they receive Him, they cry out, Hosanna, which means, save, I pray. Lord, would You save us? Would You deliver us? Would You rescue us? So the people are calling out for salvation, for rescue and deliverance from their enemies, and then they pick up palm branches and they begin to wave them as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Now one of the most foremost New Testament scholars in all the world, D.A. Carson, listen to what he says about these palm branches. He says, from about two centuries earlier, palm branches had already become a national symbol. When Simon the Maccabee drove the Syrian forces out of the Jerusalem citadel, he was celebrated with music and the waving of palm branches. He says, palms appear on the coins struck by the insurgents during the Jewish wars against Rome. Indeed, the use of palm as a symbol for Judea was sufficiently well established that the coins struck by the Romans to celebrate their victory also sported it. He goes on to say, in short, the waving of palm branches was no longer restrictively associated with tabernacles or the feast in the Old Testament, but in this instance, it may well have signaled a nationalistic hope that a messianic liberator was arriving on the scene. So when the people look at Jesus, listen, they see 
the, their, the next, their, their next William Wallace, right? Freedom, right? Faces painted, right? Riding up and down the line of troops on a horse, ready to lead them into battle. That's what they see when they see Jesus coming in. The next General MacArthur, listen, it's D-Day, and they're landing on the beaches of Normandy, ready to storm the enemy. That's the kind of environment that Jesus is riding into, and those are the kind of expectations that people have of him as he enters into Jerusalem. But here's the problem. Jesus does not meet their expectations. He doesn't. He doesn't gather an army. Right? He doesn't set up boot camps or recruiting stations. Right? There's not a, at, at every little corner store, there's not a, a, a place to sign up to come and serve in Jesus' insurgents. He doesn't scramble fighter jets or launch missiles. He doesn't react the way that they expected him to react or do anything that would lead the Romans to believe that he is a threat to their rule. And this leaves the people with a massive gaping sense of unfulfilled expectations that drives them to abandon Jesus, deny Jesus, and move from his exaltation on Sunday to his crucifixion on Friday. So that all the people would turn on him. But by riding in on the donkey as prophesied, listen, Jesus is saying, I am your king. But not that kind of king. Not the kind of king that you're wanting. Not the kind of king that you expect. Because I have a cup to drink and I have a cross to bear. In other words, I've come. Not in, in this advent. Not, not to conquer and rule and crush my enemies, but I've come to deliver and save everyone who would trust in me. Jesus says, I have a cup and I have a cross. If you look at his statement about being anointed for burial in early in chapter 12, this is what he says. He says, listen, she didn't sell it because she's saving it for what? My burial, the, the, the rest of the, 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 the perfume that she had anointed Jesus' feet with. Right? She's anointing him for burial. Then later on in John chapter 12, if you read past the text where we stop, Jesus speaks of himself as being a grain of wheat that what falls into the ground, and only when it falls into the ground will it spring up to bear fruit. Will it be productive? So Jesus bookends his discussion or coming entrance into Jerusalem with these two discussions about his death and his burial. He's being anointed early in the chapter. That he's talking about his death and falling into the ground later in the chapter. He says, I'm not a king who's coming to crush my enemies. And this is massively upsetting the people because the people, they want a king who would change their circumstances, not change them. They want a king who would deliver them. They want a king who would deliver them from their outward enemy. They didn't like the way their life was going and they wanted a change in their situation. Now listen. Some of you are like, man, that's a lot of really good information. What does that mean? Listen, we are not all that different. We are not all that different in our expectations of Jesus. Many of us find ourselves in the same place they found themselves in their day in our own. Right? See, what, what, what the reality for many people in the church today is they bought into what I would call a Disney-esque version of Jesus. And you know what the song of worship is for this Disney-esque vision of Jesus? 
It's as follows. It says this, when you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. If your heart is in your dream, in other words, if you're fully committed, then no request is too extreme because when you wish upon a star, as dreamers do, fate is kind. She brings to those who love the sweet fulfillment of their secret longing like a bolt out of the blue. Fate steps in and sees you through. When you wish upon a star, your dreams become true. And there are many people who have been presented a Jesus who is like this fate that is kind, shining upon them. And if they would just believe strong enough, they would just believe long enough, if their heart would be fully invested in all their dreams and all their desires, then Jesus is there like the genie in the lamp to grant them and to make everything go well in their life, smooth every road. There would be no rocks. There would be no sharp objects. There would be no steep drops. There would be no difficulties. The sailing would be smooth. The seas would be calm. And their desires would be fully fulfilled in this life. And many have bought into this version of Jesus, this view of Jesus that's been mass marketed to them and it's created expectations in them that whenever they find unfulfilled, right, they, like the people in Jesus' day, they step back from following Him. And they begin, to, they begin to abandon Him. As in Cademan's call, uh, a, a Christian band uh, sang about this back in 07 on a song called Expectations. And here's what they had to say. They said, that boy had the highest of expectations. And he heard that Jesus would fill him up. Maybe something got lost in the language. Because if this was full, then why bother? And you know that we all try to blame someone when our dreams won't rise up from their sleep. In other words, it's always someone else's fault whenever we do not achieve what we set out to accomplish. And the reaching of the steeple, they say, felt like one more expensive ad for something, of the, something cheap. He dressed up nice for the congregation, scared somebody's going to find him out through the dim and the clatter of the hallelujahs, a stained glass Jesus sings. And then over and over again, the refrain of the song is this, this was not the way it looked on the billboard. The smiling family beaming down on the interstate. See, those who have embraced this Disney-esque vision of Jesus, they've had a mass-marketed Jesus presented to them through smiling families on billboards, on the interstate, and that if you would just come to Jesus, your family will smile like this too. And it sets up expectations and makes promises that potentially Jesus never made about his followers in this life. And when we have dreams and desires that quickly become demands, when those demands go unmet, we drop the palm branches and we go home and we binge Netflix and eat potato chips. We abandon Jesus. So what do we need to know on Palm Sunday? That whenever, so that whenever our expectations are not met, when our dreams die, our desires may be unfulfilled, how, do we, how can, can we respond to that? How do we respond to that? Listen, I'm going to give you a couple of things this morning. The first one is this. What you need to know is that the deliverance that we need is greater than the deliverance that we want. The deliverance that you and I need is greater 
and the deliverance that we want. Right? See, what Palm Sunday reminds us of is that there are worse things than Rome that Jesus came to deliver His people from. Right? That although Jesus may not be the King that we want Him to be, that He is the King that we need Him to be in our lives. See, there are things far worse than our outer circumstances that Jesus has come to deliver us from. Things far worse than our physical diseases, than our dead-end jobs, than our boredom with our home that we're incessantly trying to fix up. There are things far worse than those things. See, what Palm Sunday teaches us is that in Jesus' coming, in His death, in His betrayal, it teaches us this, that there are far worse things in us than there are around us. And listen, until we come to grips with that, until we believe that, the cross will never thrill us, it will never captivate us, we will never be enthralled by it, we will never worship Jesus like He de- deserves to be worshipped because we will always expect Him to have our demands and desires in His back pocket, ready and willing to give them. Right? There are far worse things in us than there are around us. Listen, There are far worse things in us like our selfishness and our pride. There are far worse things in us like our lust and our anger and our greed, our foolishness, right? Anybody say, yes, Jesus has rescued me from some foolishness in my life. Yeah, amen. Our cruelty, our coldness, our apathy, our hard-heartedness, our rebellion, the fear of man that paralyzes us from walking in faith. See, there are far worse things in us. Satan, who constantly accuses us, and death that threatens to put an end to us forever. See, we had bigger enemies in our lives than our circumstances. We had bigger enemies in our lives than our financial status. We had bigger enemies in our lives than our upward mobility in our vocation. We had bigger enemies in our lives than any of our outward situations that we might find ourselves in. And those are the enemies that Jesus came to deal with. He says, I am a king, but not the kind of king that you're expecting. Not here, not now. Jesus has come in His first advent to forgive us by His death and free us through His resurrection from the grave. See, in Isaiah 53, verse 5, we're reminded about Jesus being pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. That He's come to free us from the power of sin by dying in our place. That He's giving us a down payment of our full and final salvation in the promised Holy Spirit who would come to take residence in our lives and begin to change us. How? Not by changing all of our circumstances, but by changing us in the midst of all of our circumstances. That's the power of the Gospel. There's now perseverance where there was once abandonment. That we would continue to hold fast to God in the midst of all of our suffering, in the midst of even all of our unfulfilled dreams and desires, because the Holy Spirit's coming to change us. Listen, it's high time for many of us 
to stop looking at other people in our lives and our circumstances and blaming them for where we find ourselves. Some of you are like, I wish this person were here to hear that message. But maybe God has something for you too. I know He does for me. We need to stop blaming other people and blaming our circumstances. So often we want God to change things around us, but not change things in us. Right? There are a lot of things in our lives that we need Jesus to change and to heal in us that we blame on other people or the place that we find ourselves. See, you can pray all day long for God to change your circumstances, but oftentimes it is your circumstances that God uses to reveal to you how deeply you, you need Him to change something in you. My goodness. Listen, I, I le- I've learned this the hard way. Anybody else? Learned it the hard way. And oftentimes it's our, the situations that we find ourselves in that God uses to show us that there are things in us that are more deadly and dangerous than the things around us. Listen, f- almost five years ago now, on Mother's Day, five years ago, I stepped into the role as a lead pastor of this church. And listen, over the course of the last five years, through outward circumstances, through difficulties, through rocky roads, and I'm not talking about ice cream, right? Although during that time there was the great bluebell famine, okay? But listen, through very difficult seasons of ministry and life, God began to expose things that were in me that I never would have seen apart from the challenges that I was facing. And I kept crying out to God and praying, God, would you change my circumstances? Would you change the situations that I'm in? And and it wasn't until God began to unfold my heart and show me the depth of my pride and my self-centeredness that all of a sudden the circumstances that were around me, I began to be able to deal with them differently because God was doing something in me, not delivering me from the things around me, but He was doing something in me to empower me to deal with the things that were around me. See, God taught me that there are more deadly things inside of me than there are around me. And Palm Sunday reminds us of that year after year after year after year. When our expectations go unmet, when our desires and dreams go unfulfilled, perhaps it's just because God is wanting to show us there are things in you that you never would have seen any other way. What about you? What is in you? right now that's greater than was around you. The deliverance that you need is greater than the deliverance that you want. second thing Palm Sunday reminds us of is this, is they don't expect the fullness of heaven on earth today. See, some of us have a vision for life. That's what the theolog- theologians, theologians, theologians would call an over-realized eschatology, Right? Now, eschatology is a big five-cent word that's frightened some of us because we think of Kirk Cameron movies, right? Uh, charts and televangelists and gold thrones and purple hair and all that kind of 
crazy whacked out stuff. But listen, eschatology is a study of the last things, of the end times. It's a look into how God has said He's going to bring all the brokenness of this world into a beautiful ending. Right? Many of us are familiar with the fairy tales, right? And many of the fairy tales, at the end of the fairy tale, what do you find? You find these people living happily ever after. Right? Almost every single fairy tale that exists, right? every good story that Disney has hijacked and created into a multi-million dollar film, right? Multi-billion dollar film. They've done so because it has a happy ending. And listen, the promise of the Scriptures and the promise of Jesus Himself is that this world is coming to an end and it's coming to a never-ending happy ending. That's coming one day, right? Where God will set everything right. He will heal everything he will restore everything that's been broken by sin, that's been broken by our own pride and selfishness. He will heal the nations. There will be peace that will reign forever. There will be wholeness, not only nationally, but personally in our lives. That that day is coming. There will be a never-ending, happy ending, happily ever after. And listen, you need to know that every desire that you have for a disappointment, opposition, and resistance-free life is a desire for heaven. I have those desires too. I want less resistance. Right? And that desire is a desire for heaven. It's a desire for heaven on earth, and that day will come, but not in this age. And Palm Sunday reminds us of that every single year that in the age to come jesus will return he will defeat all of his enemies he will establish his kingdom he will reign forever and ever and ever and everything that opposes him will be defeated and banished for all of eternity and yet until that day comes we will experience disappointment we will grieve the loss of those that we love there will be days in which we will have to grind it out right and so don't expect, listen, don't expect spiritual fireworks 24-7, 365. Okay, not every day is the 4th of July. Or New Year's Eve. Right? Don't expect spiritual fireworks constantly to be going off in your life because we continue to live in a fallen and broken world in which sin continues to have an effect not only on us but on those around us. So don't expect heaven, the fullness of heaven, on earth. Your marriage will be difficult. Fulfilling, yes, but difficult nonetheless. There will be heartaches and hardships. Parenting will be really hard some days. Right? Because you're raising two, well, I am anyway, two little sinners. <laughs> and I'm a big sinner that's trying to raise two little sinners. Right? Relationships within churches will be difficult at times. You have to learn to forgive and experience healing and give latitude to each other and grace to one. There will be difficult experiences over the course of your life. 
Would you have to trust God and lean on Him in the midst of all of your sorrow, all of your sadness, and all of your sickness? Because it's Jesus in His first advent did not come to inaugurate heaven on earth. He came to make it possible for all who would trust and treasure in Him one day in the second advent. And that day is coming, church. And we look for that day and we long for that day, but until that day, we live with tempered expectations. So don't expect the fullness of heaven on earth. And then third, and we're done, is this, is that we need to learn to submit our agenda to Jesus' rule. Submit our agenda to Jesus' rule. Listen, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had an agenda for Jesus. The people in Jesus' day who are waving palm branches and crying out, Hosanna, and expecting Jesus to come and drive out the Romans, expecting to roll into the temple and announce war on Rome. They had an agenda for Jesus. They wanted Jesus to fall in line with their dreams and desires. They wanted Jesus to fulfill their longings. But listen, Jesus had an agenda as well, and as the king of creation, he's not looking for proposals, right? But he's ruling and governing everything in accordance to his providence. Jesus is not looking for us to bring our proposals to him about what we think would make a better life for us and those around us, but he's ruling in accordance with his purposes, and he's ruling in accordance with his providence. He's working everything to his good and gracious ends. Even the bad, we're reminded in Romans chapter 8, that even the suffering that we encounter, even the hardships that we face, you know what God does? Is He, he Himself is not evil, but He takes evil and He brings good from it so that He cannot be accused of being one who is evil in and of Himself, but one who works all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Right? He's ruling according to His purposes. He's ruling according to His promise, providence, bringing everything to a good end. But in the midst, there's still going to be hardship. And so don't, He's not looking for your proposals. He's looking for us to submit ourselves to Him and allow Him to rule. Listen, I don't know about you, but I've had my own agenda for Jesus in my life. I had one at 18. I had one at 23. I had one at 33. And listen, I still have one at 41. We all have our own agendas for Jesus. And then we all have places where we need to submit our agenda to His rule and His providential plan for our lives. Where is that that you're... He is a king, right? Just not the kind of king that the people expected or wanted. And their agenda was running contradiction to his and ask you a question where might your agenda for your life be running counter to his and where is there a need for repentance and just to submit yourself to him to trust that he's going to work all things for your good even the bad things he's going to work for your good Listen, the king that we want is not always the king that we need. Palm Sunday reminds us of that. Reminds us of that. Where are your expectations going unmet? Where are they going unfulfilled? 
And it might not be, listen, just consider with me for a moment, it might not be. The burden might not be on Jesus. It might be on us. And it might be just because we bought into the Disney-esque vision of Him that has created all kinds of expectations that are not in alignment with anything that He's promised for His followers in this life. And so we keep keep trusting Him, submitting our agenda to Him, and expecting the fullness of heaven on earth one day is not the day. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, we come today recognizing that in His coming, Jesus, Your Son, our Savior, He teaches us much about what it means to live a life of faith and trust much about what it means to yield to you, to submit our agenda to you, to know that you are good, even whenever our desires and dreams go unfulfilled, even when our demands go unmet, you're still good. And may it be, for some of us in the room today, Father, that you, right now, are in the process of pulling things out of us through the circumstances that we find ourselves in in this life. And that you're not changing what's going on around us because you deeply want to change what's going on within us. So may we have submitted our agenda to yours as we continue to hold out hope that one day you will restore and renew everything that sin has broken. May we continue to cry out, Hosanna. Save, I pray. Deliver us. Rescue us. But not merely from our outward enemies, but also from those deadly and dangerous enemies in our souls. We pray it all in Jesus' name.